a very happy birthday today to Margaret Van, Dor Van Dornevelt. Margaret, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm going to call that Van Dornevelt. And, and Mary, Margaret lives in Cedar Rapids. Mary Kaufman from Mason City is celebrating a birthday today, as is Charlotte Koch from Sioux City, Jim Chihak in Alton, and Monica Vensley in Sioux City. Happy birthday to one and all. You are joined today in your birthday by some fairly famous people. Actors Timothy Dalton, who turns 78, actor Gary Oldman, who turns 66, and actor Matthew Broderick, who turns 62 today. Happy birthday to all of you. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you are not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. Now here's Linda with our first obituary. From Urbandale, Helen L. Rule passed peacefully from this life to her eternal home on St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, wearing green, of course. She was born Helen Louise Lewis on August 4th, 1923, to Jessie and Flossie Lewis in Des Moines. She loved sharing a birthday with the Queen Mother, who lived to be 101 years old, and especially Barack Obama, who was also left-handed. Helen graduated from North High School in 1941 with Virginia, Jeanette, and Harriet, and the four would remain friends the rest of their lives. She was married in 1942 to James Emery Sr., and that union would produce two sons, James William Emery Jr. and Michael Robert Emery. The couple divorced in 1952. In April of 1954, Helen and William Clark Rule were united in marriage. Their love story began in the meat department at the Dolls on Beaver and Franklin, where they both worked. Of this union, two daughters were born, Deborah Sue Rule and Kim Renee Rule. Kay Ann Rule, Bill's daughter from a previous marriage, would join the family on a permanent basis in 1965. With love and acceptance, Helen and Bill took theirs, yours, mine, and ours families and successfully blended all into one big loving family. They would say that was their finest achievement. Helen was always a hard worker. She worked at Colonial Bread when she was a young woman and then went to work for dolls as a meat wrapper. She worked for dolls until she gave birth to Kim in 1963. After a two-year hiatus, she went back to work for Paul Farley's Super Value by Drake. After several years, Helen returned to Dolls and worked at the store on Grand in West Des Moines. At the end of her career, she worked at various Dolls, filling in where needed, retiring in 1988. Not content to being retired, she went to work at Great Midwestern Deli for another 12 years where she baked pies, cakes, and cookies. She retired again to care for Bill in 2002. After Bill passed in 2003, Helen went to work for Baker's Cafeteria until they closed in 2006. One constant, wherever she worked, she made enduring friendships. Bill and Helen loved to go dancing on Saturday nights at the Valair Ballroom. 
They were so attuned to each other, it was like one person when they danced together. She liked movies, cats, craft shows, baking cookies, reading books, shopping, parades, especially with bands, dining out, and playing cards or dominoes with friends. She loved to travel. She had been to most of the U.S., including Alaska and Hawaii, Europe, and two trips to Egypt when her son, Michael, lived there. She loved family gatherings, celebrations, and parties and holidays, especially Christmas. Decorating her house inside and out for each and every holiday was her passion. She would take decorations to work at Great Midwestern, and she was on the decorating committee for North High Reunions and the West Des Moines Women's Club. She liked to have a lot of nice clothes and have her hair and nails done. Hairdressers have been so important to her that most have become good friends. Helen had been a resident of West Des Moines since 1964. She lived at Holland Farms Assisted Living Community in Norwalk for two years and moved to Karen Acres in January 2024. She was a happy, longtime member of West Des Moines Christian Church. Helen was preceded in death by her parents, Bill, her husband of 49 years, her son, James Emery Jr., her grandson, Michael Emery Jr., partner Robbie, her four sisters, Ruth Galen Beck, Florence Bigsby, Dorothy Parker, and Shirley Joan Lewis. Helen is survived by her children, Michael Emery, partner Marlene, Kay Moeller, Deborah Gaskins, partner Walter, Kim Young, partner Rick White, 12 grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and great-great-grandchildren, and nieces and nephews, and many friends. The family would like to thank all the friends who called, visited, sent a card in any way. You will never know how much that meant to her. Your outpouring of love and support will never be forgotten. A visitation will be held from 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, March 24th at Westover Funeral Home on Hickman Road in Des Moines. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. at the West Des Moines Christian Church on Mill Civic Parkway in West Des Moines. Luncheon to follow the services. Interment at Rest Haven Cemetery Mausoleum on 19th Street in West Des Moines following the luncheon. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be directed to the West Des Moines Christian Church. James B. Porter Jr., known to many as Jim, was born on March 9, 1943 in Waterloo. Jim pursued his education with determination, graduating from West High School in Waterloo before furthering his studies in aerospace engineering at Iowa State University. Jim's engineering career was marked by hard work and dedication, having worked at prestigious organizations such as Dorfer Engineering, Waterloo Industries, John Deere in Waterloo, and SIG Manufacturing in Montezuma. His expertise and passion for his work shone through all of his endeavors. Aside from his professional accomplishment, Jim proudly served two years with active duty service in the U.S. Naval Reserves, demonstrating his commitment to serving his country. He also had a deep love for aviation and flying, achieving his private pilot's license, which stood as a testament to his lifelong passion for the skies and all things aviation-related.
Outside of work and service, Jim found joy and solace in his hobbies. He had a profound love for radio-controlled model airplanes, dedicating countless hours to every aspect from their creation, design, construction, and flight. His enthusiasm for these aircraft was contagious, bringing joy to all who witnessed his skill and dedication. He was a proud member of the Waterloo Blackhawk RC Pilots and the Des Moines Model Airs. On March 16, 2024, Jim passed away at Iowa Methodist Medical Center in Des Moines. He leaves behind a legacy that will continue to inspire all those who knew and cared for him. Jim was a proud organ and tissue donor, and through his donation with Iowa Donor Network, the lives of countless individuals will forever be changed. Jim is preceded in death by his parents, Jane B. Sr. and Patricia C. Porter. He is survived by his wife of 53 years, Catherine A. Porter of Urbandale. Jim's memory will forever be cherished by his family, friends, and all those who had the privilege of knowing him. In keeping with Jim's wishes, no services are planned at this time. Memorials may be directed in Jim's memory to Air Power Museum in Ottumwa. Dale Goins age 89, passed away on Monday, March 15. Services will be held at Ankeny Funeral Home on West 1st Street in Ankeny. On, those will be on Saturday, March 23 at 11 a.m. with a visitation one hour prior from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. Dale was born on May 6, 1934 in Des Moines. He is the son of Arthur and Leota Albay Goins. Dale was a lifetime resident of Ankeny. Dale met Joanne Bauman in high school, and they were married on February 24, 1956. They had one son, Mark. Dale served in the United States Marine Corps for four years. He worked at Armstrong Tire and Rubber Company for 36 years. After retirement, Dale and Joanne would winter in Texas and Arizona. In his free time, Dale enjoyed fishing and all kinds of sports activities, but playing pool was his game. He enjoyed spending time with his son and grandkids. Dale is survived by his wife Joanne, his son Mark, partner Peggy Goins, grandchildren Ashley McLeod, partner Che Hoika, and Matt Goins, partner Ashley Keller. Great-grandchildren Caitlin Patterson and Brian Bevington, sisters-in-law Nancy Bauman and Rose Bauman, Dale is preceded in death by his parents, Arthur and Leota Goins, his sister Norma Jean Olson, brothers-in-law Clifford Bauman, and Danny Bauman. In lieu of flowers, contributions in memory of Dale Goins may be made to Ankeny First United Methodist Church. Fond memories and sympathies may be left for the Goins families at the Ankeny Funeral Home website. And finally, Douglas, known as Doug Ashbaugh. Douglas Ashbaugh, age 66, of Des Moines, passed away on March 16, surrounded by his loving family. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. March 22nd at Hamilton Southtown Funeral Home on Southwest 9th Street. Visitation will be held March 21st from 4 to 7 p.m. at the funeral home. To express condolences and see full obituary, you can go to Hamilton's Funeral Home website. Now here's Linda continuing with our news. I'll go back to the main section. Man files libel suit over article on book ban debate. Says he was accused of threatening school board. A progressive Iowa journalist is being sued over coverage of a 2022 book banning dispute in Scott County. Plaintiff Peter Olson is alleging libel 
by Laura Bellin, who runs the progressive political website Bleeding Heartland and covers the Capital for KHOI radio in Ames and Marie Gleason, a Bleeding Heartland contributor. The lawsuit filed Monday centers on a May 2022 column Gleason wrote for Bleeding Heartland about an April 2022 meeting of a Pleasant Valley School District committee debating whether to remove the book All Boys Aren't Blue from the high school library. The book frequently has been challenged over its LGBT themes and sexually explicit content. Gleason, a retired John Deere worker and former legislative candidate, attended the meeting, where the committee eventually voted not to remove the book. In her write-up, she said that Peter Olson of Bettendorf threatened the committee with a comment along the lines of, I know who you are and I know where you live. In the suit brought by prominent Iowa conservative lawyer Alan Ostergran, Olson denies saying anything like that. It says Olson, in public comments, stated the board would be held accountable for its decisions and that he would hold their names accountable for their vote. The Bleeding Heartland article was widely read Olson alleges, resulting in teachers and students falsely believing he had threatened the board. The suit contends that because Bellin has editorial control over Bleeding Heartland, she is responsible for publishing the allegedly false account. Bellin declined to comment to the Des Moines Register on specifics of the case. Gleason did not respond to a message conveyed through Bellin seeking comment. We have this in the hands of our attorneys and we will respond appropriately in court, Bellin said. Olson's complaint does not quote his actual words from the meeting, but on an audio recording of the session provided by Ostergran, he can be heard speaking for several minutes during public comments to advocate for removing the book. Olson told the committee that there is a tremendous amount of decay, sexual decay, taking place in our culture and urged the committee to consult with an expert on sex offenders and child molesters. There's a slippery slope we're going on here, he said. Olson twice makes reference to accountability, first telling the committee that this board is going to be held accountable to the decisions, and later that I'm going to hold your names accountable to this vote because I'm never giving up on this, and there are a heck of a lot of us who are never giving up on this. If you don't love your children the way I love my children, I don't know where this ends. Before going into closed session, committee members asked Olson to clarify, noting several had interpreted his remarks as threatening. Olson again reiterated his belief that the book was pornographic, inappropriate for children, and that there are children being abused in this community 
and there are earmarks in this book that lead to that. He denied any intent to threaten the committee and said he didn't appreciate that interpretation being put on his words. Iowa court officials agree to make new lawsuit filings available to the public sooner. Iowa will soon provide what one plaintiff calls contemporaneous access to newly filed court cases under a settlement with news publishers who argued delayed access to court filings violated the First Amendment. Lee Enterprises, a nationwide newspaper publisher headquartered in Davenport, and National News Service Courthouse News sued the state's court administrator and Polk County Clerk of Court in May of 2023 to demand better processing procedures for newly filed lawsuits. In the area in the era of paper court records, such petitions were usually open for the public to review at the clerk's office in Polk County in a wireframe basket on the counter, according to the complaint. But the transition to electronic court filings meant that in Iowa, new court petitions go first to a non-public database to await processing by court staff. Only once those administrative steps are complete, sometimes days or a week after filing, is a petition made available to the public via Iowa Courts Online. In their lawsuit, Lee and Courthouse News Service argued there's no reason for this delay. Many courts, including federal courts, make new filings automatically available online even before official processing is complete. And because the media has a First Amendment right to view and report on those documents, any policy delaying their access to new filings must be justified by and narrowly tailored to what the suit calls an overriding governmental interest. In the settlement, reached March 13, the state has agreed to adjust its handling of new petitions. A copy of the settlement agreement provided by the Iowa Attorney General's office shows the state, without admitting wrongdoing, will pay nearly $80,000 to cover the plaintiff's attorney fees and work to create a new access option to allow public viewing of pre-processing civil petitions. The settlement requires the judicial branch to add a new link on Iowa Courts Online. The Iowa Courts Online is capitalized. That's the actual name of the website. A new link to that website, Iowa Courts Online. The Courts Online system for accessing court files, giving access to pre-processed filings. The new link will be available to registered Iowa Courts Online users who have completed the proper user agreements. The parties told the judge it could take until mid-April to put the settlement fully into effect. We are extremely pleased with the outcome we were able to reach with court officials, Courthouse News Editor Bill Gerdner said in a statement. The state's willingness to wrestle with and rectify the harm posed by the delays in public access experienced under the previous system is laudable. Iowa's system will now be a model of openness and public access for other states in the region and across the country, Gerdner said. The Iowa Attorney General's Office, which represented the defendants, provided a copy of the settlement but did not have any other comment. Plaintiff's attorney, Herb Gigolo, in a statement, that's Gorgio, not 
it's I would say that's Gorgio, in a statement commended the state's attorneys for their work to resolve the dispute. Iowa is not the only state where Courthouse News has litigated over immediate access to lawsuits. The company settled a similar lawsuit with Missouri in February after a three-year battle, and cases are pending in Idaho and Oregon, among other past and ongoing litigation. On May 15, Courthouse News filed another case, this one against South Dakota. Another Republican from Ankeny running for Iowa House District 41. A second Republican has announced his candidacy to run for an Iowa House seat covering northern Ankeny. Matt Smith, who has retired from the banking industry, declared his candidacy for Iowa House District 41 on March 15th. He officially filed March 4th for the June 4th primary election. Democrat Molly Buck is the incumbent. Another Republican, former, former Ankeny School Board President Ryan Weldon, has also filed for the primary. Buck was the only Democrat to file. Whoever wins the Republican nomination in the June primary is expected to face Buck in the November 5th general election. Smith has a Bachelor's of Business Administration in Finance from the University of Iowa and a Master's in Business Administration from Drake University, according to a news release. He spent 34 years in banking, including leading Mercantile Bank in Ankeny as president. After his retirement from banking, Smith wanted to find a way to give back, the release says. Smith wants to take his financial experience and his ability to build relationships to the Iowa House to continue to work on ways to streamline streamline state government, ensuring that we deliver quality services in an efficient manner. Smith's priorities would include reducing taxes, delivering best-in-class education, creating jobs with a focus on economic activity, and mental health solutions. He is a fiscal conservative and pro-life, his campaign website says. Smith is a political newcomer. Smith, a longtime Ankeny resident, graduated from Ankeny High School in 1984, and he raised his daughters, Kate and Abby, in Ankeny with his wife, Jane, who is a school counselor in Ankeny. Kate is a physician assistant, and Abby is a mental health counselor. I am proud of the Ankeny community and pleased to call it my home, Smith said in the release. I'm excited to work hard, listen to voters, and govern on behalf of the Ankeny constituents. I believe in a citizen legislature where experienced individuals from all backgrounds take their talents to state government, work hard, and then turn it over to the next in line. Buck won the 2022 election with 50.4% of the vote to Republican Marvis Landon's 49.6%, a difference of 129 votes. Fort Dodge Police released the name of a man fatally shot by an officer over the weekend. 
The Fort Dodge Police Department has released the name of the man killed by a police officer over the weekend. The man shot and killed by police Saturday morning was 25-year-old Tyland C. Stansbury of Fort Dodge, according to a Tuesday news release. The police officers involved in the shooting were placed on critical incident leave, while the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation investigates the incident, the release says. The officers' names are not being released before they are interviewed by investigators. Further information was not av- immediately available. And additional deta- as additional details become available, we will provide updates and ensure transparency and communication with pub- the public, the release said. We appreciate the understanding and support of the community as we navigate through this process. According to a previous Fort Dodge Police Department news release, a police officer shot and killed a male subject armed with two knives after he ran at officers who had responded to a distress call Saturday morning at a home in the city. At about 8.40 a.m., the officers responded to the distress call at a home on 4th Avenue South, the release said. According to the release... While at the scene, officers were informed that there was an active warrant out for the subject of violation of probation with an original charge of domestic abuse. They then entered the home, and the subject, armed with two knives, ran at them. That's when, according to the release, an officer on scene discharged his firearm, resulting in the death of an individual. I'll read some items from the 50 States reports. From Illinois, Rushville. Residents from Illinois and all over the country are coming together to support the mourning families after a fatal crash involving a school bus and semi-truck crash which took the lives of two adults and three children. A GoFundMe was set up following the tragedy to support the families of the children for funeral arrangements that will need to be made following the loss of their family members. From Indiana, South Bend, drugs and weapons arrests increased in February, for which the South Bend Police Department credits its fully staffed department. And Iowa, Des Moines, half of Iowans believe the state's new book ban law, which has resulted in the removal of more than 1,000 books from public schools, goes too far, a new Des Moines Register Mediacom Iowa poll finds, while a third view the law and subsequent removals as about right. 13% believe this does not go far enough, and 3% aren't sure. From Kansas, Topeka, Governor Laura Kelly signed into law a bipartisan bill to allow the state to collect private funds to support Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. In Minnesota, St. Paul, on March 11th, indigenous rights and climate justice advocates from around the state gathered at the Capitol to meet with legislators. The group spent the day rallying in St. Paul and met with 60 legislators to discuss their agenda for the session. From Missouri, Springfield, the Missouri Department of Conservation confirmed that a large paddlefish snagged at the Lake of the Ozarks on Saturday is the new world record holder. A Kansas resident reportedly caught 
a 164-pound, 13-ounce paddlefish, shattering the previous Missouri record of 140 pounds and edging out the previous world record of 164 pounds. Okay, we'll wrap up this shift with a few more of these from Nebraska. Lincoln, Ray Gun is continuing its quest to be the greatest store in the universe, or at least the Midwest, with plans to open a Lincoln store later this year. It will be the 10th location for the Iowa-based novelty real, uh, retailer. From South Dakota, Pierre, students graduating from South Dakota High School this spring and attending college at the University of Minnesota campus this fall will have some of a continuing reciprocity rates when they start college. And from Wisconsin, Milwaukee, in recent years, Lake Superior has seen historic low ice cover, intense fire risk, and nuisance blue-green algae blooms cropping up likely for the first time. Tribes and scientists say Lake Superior's five national parks are responding by creating the first comprehensive plan in the nation to achieve a net zero carbon emissions. And from Michigan, Detroit, Michigan Supreme Court Justice David Viviano announced that he will not seek re-election for another term to the state's high court, issuing a statement saying he would part from the court when his current term expires at the end of this year. Viviano's announcement means that there will be a vacant seat up for grabs this year during the November election. And we will close out this shift with the 50 states highlight, which today comes from Florida, Key West. A sunken 18th century British warship involved in what was called a historic shipwreck has been identified. National Park Service archaeologists in Florida say the HMS Tiger is the name of the warship identified within the boundaries of the Dry Tortugas National Park, the National Park Service said. Built in 1647, the HMS Tiger is believed to have been a 50-gun, fourth-rate ship. This is fourth-rate ship. That's probably a characterization of the type of ship, not that it was not any better than three other kinds of ship. I'm making a guess there. Uh, but anyway, that it was carrying around 300 men, the National Park Service said. Archaeologists said the ship sank in 1742. The shipwreck's remains were initially found in 1993, but recent findings have led to its definitive identification, according to the National Park Service. And for the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Linda Lundgren and me, Twyla Glenn. It has been our pleasure to write, read for you. Now we'll take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Teresa Whitaker and Dorothy Hockenberg. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Dorothy with our next article. Okay, we are on the opinion page of the Des Moines Register. It is a your turn column. Students deserve safety, not guns in schools. And it is by guest columnist Chloe Gayer. She is from Ankeny and is a Students Demand Action volunteer, a member of the National Advisory Board, and a fellow with Every Town Survivor Network. Chloe is also a gun violence survivor. At just 15 years old, Chloe left an abusive relationship that often involved firearms. She writes, Growing up in Iowa, the fear of gun violence has been a constant presence in my life. I've learned to choose my classroom seats strategically, always near an exit. But even that didn't prepare me for the day when my school went into lockdown because of a gun on campus. I'll never forget the fear I felt texting my parents to tell them I was okay. It's a memory that still gives me chills. That terrifying day is exactly why proposals like the House File 2586 in the Iowa legislature, which would allow school staff to carry firearms, strikes fear into my heart. It goes against everything I've been taught about community, safety, and the sacredness of our educational environments. Let me make this clear. This bill is a disaster waiting to happen. It's an ill-advised attempt to arm school personnel without the necessary safeguards. Do we honestly believe that a brief training session is enough for teachers to handle firearms responsibly? Consider this. If a highly trained police force armed with semi-automatic weapons hesitated to enter an elementary school in Texas, why should we entrust barely trained school personnel in Iowa to do the same? This isn't a battlefield. It's the real lives of Iowan children online. As a student who has spent years in Iowa schools, the idea of my teachers or other school staff carrying firearms raises serious concerns about the potential for accidents or misuse of the weapons on school grounds. Our schools should be places of learning and growth, not armed fortresses where students and educators constantly feel on edge. I know that our state can do better when it comes to ensuring the safety of our schools. It's time for our policymakers to listen to the voices of students and educators and work towards solutions that truly make our schools safe and welcoming for all. Let's say no to House File 2586. Our safety should be our top priority. Iowa deserves better. Our students deserve better. It's time to prioritize their safety over everything else. Again, that was a Your Turn by Chloe Gayer. Okay, and I'm going to turn to the other Your Turn column by Bruce Lear. Woodbury Jail debacle shows Iowa what not to do. There's a whole Iowa County jailed. The Woodbury County Jail construction debacle spanning 13 years is riddled with secrecy, mistakes, and lack of supervision, leaving county taxpayers wondering how they'll escape a huge tax burden. It's a cautionary tale for other unsuspecting cities and towns. 
In 2011, the 24-year-old county jail was starting to crumble. All the vital parts of the structure were wearing out as it needed attention. But the wheels of county government grind slowly, and it wasn't until 2013 that county supervisors requested estimates to improve the antiquated security system. After all, the county couldn't let prisoners walk out the door because of 1987 technology. The estimated cost was $1.2 million for a security update. That's a big number when local politicians crave campaigning on cutting taxes. Unfortunately, like most home improvement projects, the price tag soared. A lot of other things needed upgrading, and the retrofitting price increased to about $22 million. Instead, why not build a brand new jail at a new location, and the county could let the federal government pay part of the tab while housing its prisoners? The local construction unions backed the project, believing local workers would get good-paying jobs. In 2019, it seemed logical, even clever. But, like all big ideas, the devil was in the details. At the same time, the federal government was changing the sentencing guidelines and reducing jail time. It also was obvious the only way to afford a $43 million new jail price tag was to pass a large bond issue raising property taxes. Living in Woodbury County, there's only one thing I know about raising property taxes. Trying to pass a bond issue with 60% approval is comparable to me winning a marathon. It might happen, but probably not. There had to be another way. Instead of the county trying to pass a bond issue requiring 60%, leaders decided to use a little-known Iowa law allowing joint public authorities to issue bonds with a 50% vote from the public. So, Sioux City and Woodbury County created the Woodbury County Jail Authority, and a new governing board was born to oversee construction and own the jail. The voters narrowly approved the jail bond issue thanks to organized labor campaigning. But again, these pesky details got in the way. The law limits bonding authority of joint entities to $50 million. It still worked, although the price had risen to $49 million. The $49 million began to soar with the lowest bid from a company in Lincoln, Nebraska, coming in at $58.4 million. But that company refused to complete the Responsible Contractor Questionnaire provided by organized labor to ensure quality construction. The company could have been forced to comply or be rejected. It wasn't. COVID-19 hit. There were delays in the supply chain, increased prices, multiple change orders, and numerous mistakes. To cover the increased costs, the city and county voted to use $20 million of COVID-19 relief funds. They were loud, there were loud protests met with silence. The cost soared to 20 million, 20 million, I'm sorry, it soared to $70 million. The original opening date for the jail was September 14, 2023. That date evaporated, and April 4, 2024 was announced as the new date. There was a flood. That date is history. The new goal is to open mid-May, but many believe July is more realistic. How did this happen? There was a thick veil of secrecy. The authority wouldn't allow the public or press near the project without a 10-hour safety training course and permission from the sheriff. No filming or photos allowed. It was a public project without public scrutiny. It's a cautionary tale for other counties who want to escape being jailed. And that again was by Bruce Lear, who lives in Sioux City. He's been connected to public schools for 38 years. He taught for 11 years 
and represented educators as an Iowa State Education Association Regional Director for 27 years until retiring. Okay, now turning letters to the editors. This first one is from John Franzen of Urbandale. After baby Olivia video, show what guns do to human bodies. The Iowa legislature is advancing a bill requiring school children, middle school through high school, to view an educational video depicting a developing fetus in utero, possibly in a veiled attempt to persuade these future adults to not consider a pro-choice philosophy. I would like to propose a law requiring these same students to view a video similar to what I was required to view when I was in Army Nurse Corps in Vietnam. This was a video of the damage caused by a high-powered weapons projectile as it entered the body, passing through then exiting. The narrator emphasized to not be fooled by the small entry wound because the extensive damage to the organs within, even limb wounds, could be devastating because of the massive damage to the major blood vessels. This knowledge was used to triage the wounded in the decisions to save or contact the chaplain. Should this knowledge be useful for these future adults in deciding whether to embrace our current gun culture? That by Don Franzen of Urbandale. Our next letter is by Thomas Alex of West Des Moines. Are they really public universities if we don't pay them? Years ago, when one of my kids studied her first paycheck from the business where she worked, she expressed shock, bordering on horror at the amount of money taken out for taxes, which was a major grin for veteran taxpayers standing nearby. Politicians have forever promised tax cuts, but there comes a time when tax cuts become counterproductive. The amount of state support for state universities has been decreasing. Some graduates can afford to pay only the interest on a loan and almost none of the principal. They agree to take on a ridiculous amount of debt with little chance of paying it back because the price of admission for an interview for employment is a sheepskin. According to a recent Des Moines Register editorial, tuition alone at Iowa State University has risen 236% since 2001. Inflation in that period is 73%. Iowa students have some of the worst loan debt burdens in the nation. If that's the path our don't tax and don't spend representatives choose to take, let's just call our state universities what they are, private schools. And that's from Thomas Alex of West Des Moines. This next letter is from Graham Fee of Knoxville. Chuck Schumer's criticism of Israel is naive. Senator Chuck Schumer's recent public suggestion that the people of Israel should get rid of their leader is both an embarrassment for our nation and proof that he does not understand the limits of his position. It is known by most that war is hell. When our nation was forced into World War II, we responded by dropping bombs on German and Japanese cities in our effort to end the war and convince the enemy that we would not tolerate further damage on our people and our allies. We knew at the time that those actions were both necessary and horrible. Israel is facing the same challenge. Israeli people were attacked. 
their people killed, tortured, and raped, and their property destroyed. Just as we did when we were forced into World War II, Israel must convince its enemies that it will not tolerate attacks again. Few suggested the United States should get rid of the president when we brought an end to World War II. No one should suggest Israel get rid of its leader, certainly not a single arrogant American senator. That from Graham Fee of Knoxville. This last one is from Kenton Waits of Des Moines. No place to buy groceries or coffee late at night. The Des Moines-West Des Moines metro area has a population of roughly 700,000. And while Des Moines can sometimes feel like a city, the bustling stops at sundown. The no major grocery stores stay open later than 11 p.m. and most coffee houses are tightly shuttered by sundown. Come on, entrepreneurs, let's make this a city with options for creative, non-traditional, and nocturnal adults. We've got the money to spend, and we're longing to stay out after dark. Again, by Kenton Waits of Des Moines. Okay, I'm going to turn to the sports section, and we'll start with what you can catch on TV today. College men's basketball, a lot going on today, all day long. Starting at 11.15 this morning, we have on CBS the NCAA tournament. These are all NCAA tournament games, by the way. Um, We have Michigan State versus Mississippi State, and that's in the first round in Charlotte. On True TV, we have Duquesne versus BYU, first round in Omaha, at 12.30, We have on TNT, Akron versus Creighton in the first round in Pittsburgh. At 1 o'clock on TBS, we have Long Beach State versus Arizona, first round in Salt Lake City. At 1.45 on CBS, we have Wagner versus North Carolina in the first round in Charlotte, North Carolina. At 2.10 on True TV, we have Moorhead State versus Illinois in the first round in Omaha. At 3 p.m. on TNT, we have Oregon versus South Carolina. First round in Pittsburgh. <clears throat> At 3.30 on TBS, we have Nevada versus Dayton. I'm sorry, that's Nevada versus Dayton. And the first round in Salt Lake City. And at 5.50 on TNT, we have Colorado State versus Texas. First round in Charlotte. At 6.10 on CBS, we have Oakland versus Kentucky in the first round in Pittsburgh. At 6.25 on TBS, we have McNeese State versus Gonzaga in the first round in Salt Lake City. And on True TV, we have South Dakota State versus Iowa State. Iowa State in the first round in Omaha, and that was again at 6.35 on True TV. At 8.20 on TNT, we have St. Peter's versus Tennessee in the first round in Charlotte, North Carolina. At 8.40 on CBS, North Carolina State versus Texas Tech in the first round in Pittsburgh. At 8.55 on TBS, we have Samford versus Kansas in the first round in Salt Lake City. And at 9.05 on True TV, we have Drake versus Washington State. That's the first round in Omaha. So that was, that was the list of the men's games today. For women's college basketball at 6 p.m. tonight on ESPN2 in the NCAA tournament, we have Arizona versus Auburn. That's the first four game out of Stores, Connecticut. 
And at 8 p.m. on ESPN2, we have Utah, Utah Martin versus Holy Cross in the first four game. That takes place in Iowa City. Moving on to college wrestling at 11 p.m. today on ESPNU, the NCAA Tournament Session 1 first round in Kansas City, Missouri. And at 6 p.m. on ESPN, the NCAA Tournament Session 2 Championship second round plus consolations, again out of Kansas City, Missouri. And if you want something totally different, we have figure skating at noon today on USA, World Championships Women's Short out of Montreal, Canada, at 2 p.m. on USA, World Championships Men's Short, and at 7 p.m. on USA, we have the Pairs Free Skate, again, World Championships. And golf today at 1 p.m., we have the PGA Tour, the Vassball Championship, first round, Copperhead Course in Palm Harbor, Florida, 5 p.m., the LPGA Tour, the Fur Hills Seri Pack Championship, first round, out of Palos Verdes Golf Club in Palos Verdes Estates, California. Major League Baseball, we've got some spring training games at noon today on MLBN. We have the New York Yankees versus Atlanta out of Northport, Florida. And at 3 p.m., we have Chicago White Sox versus Kansas City out of Surprise, Arizona. In NBA basketball, this evening at 6 p.m. on NBA TV, New Orleans is at Orlando. And at 9.30 p.m. on NBA TV, Atlanta is at Phoenix. We have NHL hockey this evening at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN. And on Hulu, that's Nashville at Florida. And at 9 p.m. on ESPN, we have Seattle at Vegas. In men's soccer at 11.50 p.m. today on FS2, we have the UEFA Euro 2024 qualifier, Georgia versus Luxembourg. At 3, uh, excuse me, at 2.30 p.m. on FS2, we have Wales versus Finland. And finally, in tennis at 6 p.m. this evening, on the Tennis Channel, the Miami Open ATP first round, WTA second round. And let's see if I can find any sh a short article here on some roundups, possibly. Maybe not. <laughs> no, there are no short, but there might be some in-brief articles. So we're going to turn it over to Dorothy for Dear Abby. Okay, Dear Abby, a once supportive wife becomes abusive drinker. She writes, Dear Abby, I have been married for 28 years. Last year, I was diagnosed with cancer. It was discovered because of a seizure I had at work. They put me in an ambulance, took me to the hospital, and did a CT scan, which revealed my stage 4 cancer. Prior to this, my wife didn't work, while I had a well-paying job. This instantly reversed for obvious reasons. My wife was extremely attentive. She started taking me to all my appointments and spent a lot of time with me in the hospital on her days off. This was about a six-month ordeal, and a long story short, when I saw my doctors last week, they announced that after 35 radiation treatments and seven chemo treatments, 
they can no longer find any visual evidence of the cancer. I was so thrilled, I cried. Since then, my wife has been drinking heavily and getting angry with me just about every night. I don't know what's going on with her or what to do. She's the best woman I've ever met and I don't want to lose her, but she's starting to become violent. Could you give me some advice? And that is from Recovering But Confused. Abby says, Dear Recovering, your wife may be reacting to the trauma she suffered when you became ill, which meant she had to become the primary caregiver. This, however, does not excuse her excessive drinking and violent episodes. Of one thing I am certain, you must not allow the status quo to continue, regardless of how much you love her. She should be evaluated by her doctor to see if something is medically wrong with her. And the two of you need to get into counseling right away. And because she can't handle her drinking, she may have to start rehab or join a self-help group. The next letter is Dear Abby. My 22-year-old stepdaughter has been receiving very large Venmo payments into her bank account. I know this because my husband, her father, is also on the account and I have access to it. We have asked her several times where the money is coming from. The first time she lied and said it was from dog walking. She has a history of lying. She has recently started claiming that her old boyfriend from four years ago, whom she broke up with because she found tons of photos of half-naked women on his phone, was sending her money. Abby, this isn't $20 or even $100. It's thousands of dollars every month. Her ex was a delivery driver. No way he can make that much after-tax money. Where do you think she's getting the money? I say sex, but my husband refuses to believe it. What should I do? That is from Suspicious in Texas. Abby says, Dear Suspicious, I too suspect that your stepdaughter may be involved in something sex-related. She could be an escort, have found herself a sugar daddy, or be participating in a sex webcam show. She could also be involved in selling illegal drugs. Because your husband refuses to believe his daughter would do anything illicit, for the sake of your marriage, take a step back. Wait and see what transpires. His daughter is an adult and is responsible for making her own decisions. Because she has trouble telling the truth, there is nothing you can do to help. Okay, we're going to do a couple short little articles here from the Iowa Life section. First of all, with the um, NCAA tournament starting, we have Hoops and Hops. It starts today um, and it's at Cowles Commons, 313 Walnut Street in Des Moines. It's free for all ages. It's from 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. through Saturday and also this evening until the end of the Drake University game. It includes a heated tent, beverages from the Thirsty Pigs, and food trucks, Big Red Food Truck, Second Avenue Sandwiches, and Hotsy Totsy. Sound on the big screen is on when local teams are playing. And then this article, find out what Zavi Kitchen Vietnamese Restaurant has planned. 
The East Village is about to get a Vietnamese restaurant. The owners of Pho Real Kitchen and Bar, the Court Avenue restaurant that specializes in Vietnamese pho and Asian cuisines, plans to open a second restaurant in the East Village. Zavi Kitchen takes over the former Franca Pizzeria space at 111 East Grand Avenue with modern Vietnamese fare. The restaurant owners say the name, Zavi, is a wordplay on Giavi seasoning in Vietnamese. While Faux Real remains the cozy haven for late night foes, Zavi Kitchen takes these flavors and elevates them to an unparalleled level of sophistication without compromising the authenticity that defines our dishes, the Faux Real Facebook page shared. The menu at Zavi Kitchen leans into noodle soups. The restaurant's Facebook page teases dishes such as a crab tapioca noodle soup, beef noodle stew, wonton soup, and crab tapioca noodle soup. Vietnamese meatballs, sizzling beef, crispy Vietnamese crepes, grilled pork and broken rice, and crab fried rice, joined sticky rice, char su rice bowls, and grilled pork spring rolls. Zavi also plans to serve fried catfish, fried silver pomfret, and fried tilapia in a tomato sauce. The restaurant already hung a sign and applied for a liquor license. Beau Real Kitchen and Bar opened on Court Avenue in Des Moines in 2019. Franca Pizzeria closed on September 16th. The restaurant space at 111 East Grand was sold to another local business, according to a pop-up on the Franca website. Frank has a location in Clive. Savvy Kitchen promises a spring opening. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Teresa Whitaker, and my partner at the microphone has been Dorothy Hockenberg. Earlier, you heard Twyla Glenn and Linda Lundgren. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.